HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. With Perilla, why will a Korean grandma get really mad at you if you bring her Japanese shiso? It's not just trauma and it's not just nationalism. Like, they are very, very different plants that get treated the same way just through like a Western perspective. But, you know, that's where like language, the erasure that happens through language sort of domination, like gets scary on a genetic erosion level because you call everything shiso just because that's like the easiest entry point for maybe people in the U.S. to understand it. But that masks all of the genetic diversity like within Perilla, all of these unique chemical signatures. So we wanted to get back to that of just saying like there's actually so much more diversity in all of these crop species um, that is being really flattened because of these different types of like imperial mindsets. And we wanted to just blow that back open. That was Kristen Leach, a farmer who has incorporated crops and growing practices of the Asian diaspora at her California farm. We'll hear more about her work in just a moment. This week, we're looking at the role of seed saving in cultural preservation. From Korean perilla in California to Somali water spinach in Maine, we'll explore how diasporic communities can tie tastes of home to American soil through seeds. I'm Matt Patterson, and this is Meat and 3 on HRN. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. If you stop to think about it, seeds are a foundational element of our very existence. They shape us and our futures, and we, in turn, shape theirs. Katie Ruther takes us to Northern California to find out how one organization is considering the dynamic relationship between plants, place, and people. Every seed and every relationship is a book. Do you feel like you've actually like contributed something to that seed story at this point, or did you just perform a seed increase? This is Korean-American farmer Kristen Leach. 
Kristen is the founder of Second Generation Seeds, a source for culturally significant seeds grown by and for agroecological farmers of the Asian, Southwest Asian, and North African diasporas. You know, anyone can do that. You buy a pack of seeds, you end up with a lot more seeds if you save them. Um, But did you lend anything to that seeds journey? And do you feel any pull of responsibility to what's going to make sure that seed is like healthy for the long term? After moving to the Bay Area nearly 15 years ago, Kristen started growing Korean crops with seed from Kitazawa Seed Company. The century-old company is a leading source for traditional heirloom Asian seed varieties. Working with crops integral to Korean cuisine, such as perilla and chili peppers, connected Kristen to Korean culture and history. The flavors, textures, and appearance of these plants gave her insight into what Korean people deem desirable in their foods. I think if you're paying close enough attention, a seed and a plant can tell you a little bit about the type of care that it's been in. Uh, and I felt like the seeds that we had available here were just not, were not being grown with small scale and agroecological farmers in mind. Um, whether that was just like ability to thrive with, you know, less inputs, uh, being kind of resilient to the stressors that we face in terms of like heat and drought intensity. In response, Kristen partnered with Kitazawa to establish a community-driven seed collection focused on adapting Asian varieties to the conditions of small-scale agroecological farms like hers. We wanted to like breed and improve varieties for the types of environmental stressors we were facing. We wanted all of the flavor and sensory characteristics to be really shaped by our communities, and we wanted to democratize different parts of that process. So everything is like tempered by this community holding of these seeds and their stories. And that became really the focus, just trying to think of any person, regardless of your interest or how much you think about seeds on a daily level, where is the on-ramp for you to care or like deepen your care of seeds or see yourself as having some role to play in like a different form of seed system. Over the years, this seed collection transformed into second-generation seeds, an independent collective of Asian diaspora growers reclaiming the narrative around Asian crops, culture, and foodways. Kristen works with five other farmers and organizers to make Second Generation a hub for meaningful exchange within and across communities. One element of their work includes helping Asian growers nationwide trial and commercialize personally meaningful seed. We've invested a lot currently in just providing a lot of support to farmers to like build and deepen their skills and and trying to develop for ourselves. Like what are the processes that we want to see when it comes to commercializing a seed? Like what do we want someone who receives those seeds to know and trust about the way we've kept those seeds, the way we've considered the different community involvement um, levers that we had to activate. And so I think it was important to us to take it slow and not just try to kind of like grow as many seeds and have as big a catalog as possible. We wanted it just to be like every single thing that you see in our catalog reflects someone really particularly caring about it and being like really responsible to it and being able to like convey some of their mindset. Um, And we wanted to reflect that sort of like community and collective love for them. Second generation farmers steward crops such as black chestnut soybeans, lady choy chili peppers, and roselle, a type of hibiscus. 
The organization also built an online platform to connect people from all backgrounds and growing scales. Virtual cook-alongs and potlucks highlight specific crops and present community members with opportunities for reflection, exchange, and inquiry. Second Generation Seeds reminds us that we are constantly evolving in tandem with the seeds that sustain us. Seeds reflect our culturally defined preferences and practices and the current state of the natural environment. They allow us to look into the past and imagine our futures. For our next story, we turn to the HRN show Fields to learn about seed libraries and their role in preserving particular cultures. Hosts Melissa Metric and White Marshall spoke with Ken Green, expert seed breeder, seed librarian, and one of the founders of Hudson Valley Seed Library. His work is twofold, focusing both on the harvesting of seeds and working directly with the communities the seeds belong to in order to ensure the seeds are preserved for generations to come. Sometimes seeds are endangered. They might disappear. They're significant to a certain culture or a certain ritual or a certain cultural food way. And they don't currently have a home that is able to take care of them. So the sanctuary is a place to bring those seeds in during this in-between time to say, you know, we have the resources here and the skills here on our seed farm at this sanctuary to care for these seeds and make sure they're not going to disappear. Mm. During which time, we need to do work in whatever community that they came from to say, how can we support you so that when these seeds come back to you, you have what you need to care for them. Ken works with the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network and the Haudenosaunee community in Akwesasne, on the border between northern New York and Canada. He emphasizes that their work is driven directly by those communities. It's better to work within the communities that those seeds came from to figure out what do those communities actually need? What do the seeds mean to them? There are other white-led, white-centered organizations in the past and currently that have worked on preserving, but it's done in this way of white people doing something that they think is valuable for another culture Mm -hmm. Um, rather than the other way around, which is saying, starting with listening and saying, we have some resources and we have interest in this. You know, how can we support seed sovereignty within your community? This community driven work to preserve these lost seeds is part of a much bigger picture. Melissa, a host of fields sums this up nicely. So this story is really powerful for a few different reasons. And I think one of them is that seeds can connect you through time in different ways, especially culturally. But the you is really important there. It's not going to have the same impact to look at a seed if you don't necessarily have a cultural connection to it, or you don't know you have a cultural connection to it, or that cultural connection was taken away from you. Because talking about what changes in a plant or in our food and what stays the same, talking about what's a native plant and what's an introduced plant, and talking about why we do different things to plants depending on our culture has to do with a much larger picture and story. 
Fields is preparing to release their third season this summer. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be the first to hear those episodes as they come out. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is supported by HRN business member Food Karma Projects, dedicated to community building by creating unique food events that showcase the best local food, chefs, beer, and wine. Get fired up for the return of Rib King NYC for a full day of delicious fun at the ultimate Memorial Day barbecue and live music event featuring two sets of jammed out funk and blues mashups. It all takes place on Saturday, May 27th at Industry City in Brooklyn, New York. To purchase tickets or for more information, visit ribkingnyc.com. Food Karma Project supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drives conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Last month, Capri Cafaro of Eat Your Heartland Out spoke with Yusuf Benrella about BIPOC leadership in Midwestern agriculture. As both a chef and co-founder of the culinary collective Trade Roots Farms, Yusuf links his work in urban farming and cultivating heirloom vegetables with survival. Well, I feel like food sovereignty is um, a huge important factor in our survival as black and brown people. We have to be able to rely on ourselves to be able to feed ourselves traditional, culturally relevant foods, to feed our communities and families those culturally relevant foods that have kept us healthy and in balance for millennia. And then getting away from that and to these forced colonial diets is led to a litany of health issues. We have diabetes at way higher rates. We have uh, early onset Alzheimer's at way higher rates in both African and indigenous communities. And then we also, in the places that we live, we don't always have access to health and nu- healthy and nutritious food. Mm-hmm. So the importance of getting back to growing our own foods and reclaiming our ancestral foodways is essentially for Uh, for us to be able to survive into the future and to be healthy. For the past few years, Yusuf has created gardens in his home city of Madison, Wisconsin, to provide a space for culturally relevant agriculture, as well as free produce for community members. Since 2021, I started, in partnership with Rooted, uh, largely as a solo project, started uh, Afro-Indigenous Garden at the state capitol here in Madison. Mm-hmm. And it's the first one that I know of in Wisconsin history. But, you know, I grew, I uh, partnered with some indigenous folks and got some corn seeds that we planted there. And then we also planted collard greens and okra and garden eggs and a lot of different other Afro-diasporic vegetables. Mm-hmm. And then in 2022... We partnered with Hmong growers who, um, we have a large Hmong community in Wisconsin. And, yes. Um, they have a rich agricultural background and to celebrate, you know, and make it more of a BIPOC space, 
We partnered with a couple other organizations. We partnered with Urban Triage Agriculture mm -hmm. and then partnered with uh, Hmong Farmer New Tao to grow some um, traditional Hmong medicines. So we grew like elephant's ear, we grew lemongrass. Oh, wow. We also grew collard greens and okra and um, a couple varieties of indigenous corn again this year mm. or last year. And then so this year we're going to continue that. We're going to, it'll be a true BIPOC garden at our state capitol. Yusuf's work demonstrates how agriculture is becoming a powerful tool in social justice action. By centering food sovereignty and community education, Trade Roots Farm seeks to change the landscape of Midwestern agriculture. To hear the rest of their conversation, listen to Eat Your Heartland Out, wherever you get your podcasts. For our final story, Liv Cunnins-Berkowitz takes us up to Maine to meet a member of the Somali Bantu community, helping fellow farmers grow their ancestral crops in a very different climate. Mahadine Liba is the executive director of the Somali Bantu Community Association, or the SBCA, and of Liberation Farms in Maine. In 2005, Liba founded the SBCA to support his community in making home and accessing opportunities in Maine. The SBCA began by offering transitional services, but they quickly evolved into promoting economic development. So Liberation Farm is a farming program started in 2014. So with the idea that people can produce their own fruits and vegetables uh, right from their strength and their muscles. Today we have 220 farmers farming with us, mostly from Somali Bantu community members. So how did a thriving community of Somali Bantu people end up in Maine? The Bantus are an ethnic group hailing from southwestern Somalia. Over the past centuries, the Somali Bantu people have endured violence and persecution under multiple governments and regimes. In 1999, the U.S. offered the Somali Bantu people resettlement. Liba explained to me that his community is from a really rural part of Somalia. And so when they arrived in America, many people felt comfortable in Maine, which is also a rural place. Today, over 3,000 Somali Bantu people live in the Lewiston-Auburn area of Maine. And although many of the Somali Bantu immigrants to Maine come from families that have farmed for centuries, it was initially challenging to translate their agricultural knowledge to Maine, given the state's harsh climate. They're trying to plant mangoes. I'm like, oh, no way, mango doesn't grow here. Mango needs a warm climate. So people learned the hard way that they have to access the land as soon as the land is warm and get out of the land as soon as it is the end of September. Although the farmers at Liberation Farms contend with a limited growing season, they're still able to grow many varieties of fruits and vegetables that they've historically farmed in the Juba River Valley in Somalia. And we are trying to bring the foods that we used to have back home in Africa. Most of them are so successful. We have uh, water spinach, it's called barele in our language. So we, we are having all the foods and plus the culture, you know, the corn roasting culture. Like people will go into their plot to get green corn. We start a fire, people will come roasting their corn and, and just have nice talk on the lawn. In 2020, thanks to the collaboration of multiple organizations and with community support, the SBCA was able to establish the Little Juba Agrarian Commons on 104 acres of land in Wales, Maine. We have two sections of the farm. Uh, we have a community gardener section, that is 220 of them. 
farming in three sections of the land. And we also have a wing that is uh, called Iskashito. Iskashito is a word in our language, which means collaborative work. Iskashito is a form of cooperative farming traditionally practiced in Somalia. At Liberation Farms, there's nine Iskashito groups, each with five members. And these farmers sell their produce to 10 wholesale accounts at four farmers markets and at a farm stand right on the farm. 15% of their profits go back towards running the farm and the rest is shared among the farmers. I asked Liba if he thinks other farmers in America could learn from the Iskashito model. Yes, yes, it's a good way, even though the American communities are individualized. In America, approximately 73% of agricultural workers are born outside the U.S. These farmers carry with them practices and knowledge that have the potential to transform the ways we produce food. In Maine, Somali Bantu farmers are both learning from and teaching their neighbors. You can visit the Somali Bantu Community Association's website to learn more about and support the flourishing of Liberation Farms. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Katie Ruther, Rana Rudy, Charlotte Rhodes, and Liv Cummins-Berkowitz. Meet and 3 is produced by Kevin Chang-Barnum, Katie Mosman-Wadler, H. Conley, and me, Matt Patterson. Our audio engineer for this episode is H. Conley. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.